Welcome to season three of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. My name is Amy Wheeler and I'm your host. We are so happy to tell you all that's happening in the world of yoga therapy. And we love to find guests from all over the world so that we can share and learn and grow together. Some of the things that are happening in season three that we find so exciting is that not only are we continuing with the free gift that we are giving out every single week in season two, and you can see more about that in the show notes, but now we are adding a YouTube channel and you can see all of these podcasts on video. The YouTube channel is called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. Some people like to watch video maybe you want to use it for one of your trainings these videos on youtube will be there for you to use for free we would love your support we have opened up a patreon page that is going to help the podcast flourish and grow you can help us to expand and grow and create more content for you and we'd love for you to visit the patreon page which is called optimal state and yoga therapy hour podcast so let's go into our guest today and please nourish yourself take time for yourself and really relax into listening to the podcast hello everyone welcome to today this is a discussion with sham ranganathan that i have been really looking forward to Some of you heard Sham speak at Sitar this year, and he's written some articles for Yoga Therapy Today. He is in the Department of Philosophy at York University. And I just want to read you a little bit about his bio because he's a very unique person in that most of the people in the yoga world, they are not looking at yoga from a very, very strong philosophical perspective. So he says, I am a translation theorist, a philosopher and a teacher. I write on ethics, political philosophy, philosophy of thought, philosophy of language, philosophy of religion, and Asian philosophy, especially Indian philosophy. And, you know, he sees himself as using this knowledge that he's gained, this way of thinking through things as a way to decolonize philosophy and the humanities, right? So I find that really interesting to have put his life force into philosophies, specifically South Asian philosophy, and at the same time be willing to be deconstructing. And I think a lot of what Sham and I are talking about in this episode, it it could go over somebody's head, but it's really about figuring out how to live your life on your terms so that you can conserve energy. You don't have to, you know, pretend to be this way with these people and that way at work and this way at home. You can conserve and consolidate your life force to show up as you are living your life on your terms and just being you. And that that's really what we're trying to do here with yoga. We're not trying to perfect triangle pose. We're not trying to rid ourselves of all the negative habits. We're not trying to lose weight. We're, we're really trying to show up authentically where we are very connected to ourselves and we can feel comfortable in our skin. That's, that's what all those fancy degrees and all the things that I just read to you about Sham, that's really what he wants to bring forth. And, and the, the another way to say it is that you might have enough space inside of you, but also outside of you to occupy your own life with a sense of this is who I am and I'm okay just as I am. And I love that he pointed out that this is not like a libertarian kind of thing where I'm just going to do whatever I want, however I want, so I feel good all the time. Really, it's not that. We are in families. We are in communities. We're not always going to get our way. There are going to be struggles. It's not a selfish way to live. Of course, you're going to take care of others. That's assumed. 
and you're not going to forget about yourself. You're, you're here to do this work with your own soul. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Sham. We didn't have a huge plan, but a lot of you are telling me that those are your favorite interviews where we just kind of wander around and you're baking or something while you're listening. It's almost like having two, two friends talking in the background. And I really like those conversations too. So welcome to Sham. And I'm really happy that he decided to join us. Welcome, Sham. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you for coming and being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Amy. So I had seen you on Instagram for, for many months now, but then when I heard you talk at Sitar, all the light bulbs went off and I really started to follow you. And then, of course, I went and found this this beautiful article that you had written for, I think, didn't you write it for, was it Yoga Therapy Today? That's right. Okay. And so I just want to dive right in. The thing that really jumped out at Sitar to me is you said it's kind of incorrect to say trauma-informed yoga. So can you just start off by telling yeah. us why you think that's a strange statement or a title? Sure. So if your yoga needs to be informed by trauma, it wasn't yoga, it was ableism right? So it wasn't yoga to begin with. Actual yoga is about overcoming the afflictions and the kleshas, and that's like another way to talk about trauma. Mm -hmm. So if you're actually doing yoga, you're addressing, you're addressing people's afflictions, but in a positive practice, in a practice where the focus isn't the problem, but a practice that people can perfect. Right, and that the perfection of that practice makes room for them in their life. So I actually found I was just so confused when I saw people talking about trauma from yoga. I'm like, what are they talking about? <laughs> I remember it took me a long time. And then people say, Oh, well, you know, when people come to yoga classes, you have to know that some people have trauma. I'm like, everybody's had who doesn't have affliction cliche? This is weird. Wait, I mean, do you really think there's some people who don't have these problems? What I do think is that there is a privileged segment of the population where their place or their affliction is the problem of the day. So they're just so closely identified with the politics of the day. It seems like everything is going well for them, but that's actually, they're in a state of klesha because they're not independent. They're, they're programmed and determined by what they're experiencing. And so they just buy the values of the society. And not everybody can get away with this, right? So there are there is a kind of privileged individual who can get away with this. And then it seems like things are going well for them. And I mentioned this in the article. There's this great philosopher who, who wrote this article about racism as self-love. And he, and he talks about the case of people who say they, they don't hate Black people, they just love white people. And so the racism then is about their love for themselves as white people. But as he describes it, it's it's almost a completely yogic description. They've internalized the white supremacy of the world they live in, and then they feel threatened mm. by diversity. And so they keep this trauma with them all the time. And so the way to deal with the way they think to deal with that is to just simply protect the politics of the day. Now, he calls that self-love, but in yoga, that's not self-love, that's asmita, that's egotism. So some people's egos are convenient. It doesn't mean that they don't have trauma, trauma. And so a real yoga practice should be addressing all of that all the time. So it's a very bizarre idea that some people don't have trauma, some people do, and then you need a special yoga practice for the people. And it's also strange just because that's just not yoga. Whatever it is that you thought you're doing, something else. Well, and it always confused me because when I would hear about these trauma-informed trainings, it was like, make sure that the participant doesn't have to have their back to the door. Make sure, like, there were very structural kind of form-related mm -hmm. things that, okay, that's fine. But mm -hmm. as you're saying, it's really about function, right? It's about yeah. becoming a sovereign human being. Right. And that even very ableist people 
are very, very far from being a sovereign human being. Yeah, yeah, they have all sorts of issues and they're fragile, so they can't deal with change. They can't deal with the political challenge of the day. And so they just wanna, they just end up conservatively upholding the status quo. But tapas, one of the three basic practices of yoga is about breaking that, mm. that hold uh, on us. And we do that, we do that on purpose when we practice yoga. So yeah, it's, it's very, and you know, I think also these structure, these rules that people invent I find weird because yoga is not about rules. Right. <laughs> because it let, let's say you think you've, you've figured out the rules, right? There, there's still going to be someone for whom they're going to still be marginalized because they can't somehow function and, you know, comfortably and with, with those. Like, you know, every time you think that you've kind of described in detail how things should go, you're already setting boundaries and someone's going to be marginalized. So it's, I think just, but yoga, we don't, that's not yoga. Yoga is this devotional practice to what we have in common, which is an interest in Ishra's sovereignty. And so then it's a practice of solidarity. So you don't have to invent these rules. You just, you by practicing, you're inclusive. It's very different, right? Because it's not a country club. <laughs> it, it isn't, right? There, there aren't kind of rules to entry to be part of it. I understand what you're saying, and I think there are so many people that don't understand we've been practicing yoga, at least in the West, as being part of the country club. I mean, that's exactly right. the greatest analogy I've heard. And so they just don't understand that there even is such a thing as being progressively sovereign. I, I mean, I yeah. think what you're saying is that yoga is a form of being progressive and not just going along with the status quo. Absolutely. Well, the origins of progressive philosophy are in the Yoga Sutra. We get it from there. Gandhi based his Satyagraha on the Yoga Sutra. Martin Luther King based his civil rights movement on the example of Gandhi. And then contemporary progressive movements, you know, take King as a, a, as a, as a kind of a guide. It's, it goes back to the Yoga Sutra. Sutras in Book 230 to 35 is where you get potentially talking about direct action mm -hmm. as the practice of disrupting harm. But also there are these lovely sutras where he says that you have to understand the origins of violence. It has to do with past trauma. And so if you're really going to be an agent for change, you have to, you have to deal with the trauma of people who are opposed to the practice of yoga. Uh, so like, if you're going to do it, so what people tell me trauma reform, you know, if they were at least talking about that, I would, I'd appreciate that there was some basis for it, but at any rate, you know, it's a practice that, that recognizes that, you know, we, we are not, this perfect life is something we work towards. We're not born that way. So, so it, it takes work and it's an ideal. It's something that you aspire to. And then you can't take things for granted, right? That's just part of the, the practice and I think when people think about yoga they often take a lot of things for granted I'm often amazed at how much people take for granted they think they know on the basis of very little learning or work it's usually just what someone told them is that frustrating and for you because we should maybe back up and talk about your extensive history as a philosopher and working at a university in South Asian studies is it is it frustrating to have someone flip out some random factoid that they learned in their 200 hour teacher training that is completely off point and out of context? Um, the mistakes or the misinformation is less alarming than the idea that because someone's gone through that training, they know. Mm. Right? I find that, I find that concerning and I, and it also speaks to the ways in which people don't value or appreciate what research is. So, you know, one way to think about research is to be a student when there's no one to teach. So you have to go, mm -hmm. you have to go figure out the answers to these questions yourself, but you have to do it methodically. Otherwise it's just you making stuff up, right? So then you need a procedure that allows you to process the data and that processing of the data has to be different from how you feel about things or how, how, you know, what you believe. Anyways, this is actually the way yoga is defined at the start of the, of the yoga studio. Yoga is the So yoga is this practice of 
ordering, stealing, organizing mental data, then the seer can abide in their own essence, or then they're they're free they're free to kind of take stock. So real yoga and research, they're they're the same thing. I think, you know, I find it very alarming when people it isn't even on their radar, right? They're so convinced of their beliefs. You know, we see this over and over again, yeah. like in COVID yeah. or pandemic, with whether you should get a vaccine. Or like some people are less like they just decided or they read a blog or something, right? Meanwhile, there are people who are actually doing research and, and you know, that's so easily written off. But this is, I think, an, an expression of trauma, but it's also ego. So I find that interesting. I find that like when I do show up, I show up as someone who's done research and for most people, they think that means I read like more books than them or something. <laughs> right? like, that's the way they're thinking about it. Or I took more trainings than them or something. What I'm hearing you say, I think, is you have remained open to all possibilities with a receptive mind to try to find truth, even if it doesn't agree with your current belief structure. Yeah, well, that's what researchers, they need some way. They, they set a question, then they have to have a procedure for processing the data. And then, you know, there will be a conclusion to that pro process and it can be surprising. So my work, I've actually kind of one of the things that I worked on in philosophy is thinking about what that's like for philosophy. What, what's the procedure where we can just measure the possibilities? And then at some point we'll be done that project and then we might be surprised. Right. What what does that look like? And then the opposite is what I call interpretation, where you explain things in terms of what you believe, which is pretty pretty ordinary, uh, and it's a big part of the Western tradition, interpretation. And so, you know, I think people who can get away with that, they have a certain privilege where their beliefs somehow work for them mm. um, for a little while. And I think there's also that aspect when I see they get upset, it's hard not to also notice the racial dimensions too for for me because so tell um, us about that because i think yeah well you know talk about yeah i mean i think it's weird when you are someone who does you put on a lot of work into you know research and then you're kind of treated as just like one more person at the table so one of the things that i find extremely insulting but i think people are well, I don't think they're being polite, but I think they're trying to minimize the radical implications of what I have to share. They'll often say things like, well, thanks for sharing your perspective. And, you know, I'm like, well, if I was just sharing my perspective, that would be so uninteresting. <laughs> like, just, like, that's not the point of what, you know, a researcher has to share. You know, there's this long history in the Western tradition of not liking actual philosophy. And I talk a lot about the, the roots of that in the Western tradition, but you know, from the very start, the tradition was about a, like a, it was a, it's based on this idea of social conformity. Mm. And philosophy is very inconvenient because philosophical questions and answers don't necessarily conform to what people expect any more than any kind of research. But when you have a tradition that's really built on people just explaining things in terms of their perspectives, it's very threatening. So I think what we see in the yoga world is to deal with that is that people often have no standards for philosophy training. It's just someone who really enjoys the subject will, will teach it. And, and I really enjoy physics. I'm not, I can't teach you. I, I would never try to teach anybody physics. Right? <laughs> and so what or you're math. saying is that to have an actual philosopher who understands both Western philosophy, the Eastern philosophies can kind of codify it in their mind and that it really takes someone with a much higher level of skill than someone who's read, you know, five copies of the Bhagavad Gita or Patanjali's Yoga Sutra and has come to understand what they want to share now. It, it really... Right. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I mean, people get offended by this, but the difference is that if you've actually done research, your conclusions aren't about what you like and how you see things. They're really just what follows from tracking the options. So you have to first be open to the options, and that just that's that requires getting over your ego then. 
And then you have to study the options. And most people aren't interested. They want to kind of do a deep dive into yoga, but they're not going to be able to understand what yoga is unless they understand what the alternatives are and the ways in which yoga isn't the alternatives. But when people don't do that, yoga becomes everything and nothing. It just is whatever people feel like. They think the word can be used for, it's really just up to them. And then, of course, this ends up contributing to the idea that we don't have to take seriously this history of people working on yoga and thinking about yoga. And we don't have to, you know, we can just appropriate. It's just whatever we feel like it should be. Yeah, there's so much there to to unpack. Someone is really, truly interested in understanding the the depth and the breadth of yoga philosophy, where would you tell them to start? What would be a first step? Great. So you have to learn very basic philosophical skills that are not encouraged in the Western tradition, but these are the skills that you need, you would need to do well in a philosophy program. So you have to learn how to extract from what you read from perspectives, theories that logically entail the things that people are willing to say and then you take a step back you do this enough you can start to see what the disagreements are and what in the ways in which mm-hmm. the different theories are disagreeing about a basic uh, concept if you were to do that in south asia you would notice that there's several different theories of dharma which is uh, how they disagreed about the right choice or good outcome and so you know what i say is that Unless you develop these skills, it doesn't matter what you read, doesn't matter who you study from, because you'll just end up explaining it in terms of how you see the world anyways. Without these skills, it doesn't matter how much, like what you call reading will just be you opining. Um, Reinforcing your current beliefs. (laughs) Yeah, right, for sure. So in yoga, right, this is asmita, this egotism, and it's actually an ingredient in klesha and affliction because when we beliefs or an attitude that something is true is actually if you're in a state of belief it's passive you've given you've given your assent to a thought and then you organize your life as though that thought is true and then you don't ask you know quest you can't question because it's it's how you are organizing everything so, you know, philosophy, this subject is really about not doing that, but it takes, it takes energy, just like yoga, right? Potentially says in book one, like your success is going to be proportional to the, the intensity of your commitment. And, you know, it's so true for philosophy too. But the upside is that these skills are basically yogic skills. They're basically the skills that potentially is communicating in the yoga sutra. But once again, if you're not working on those skills, you could read any number of, you could read the yoga sutra in Sanskrit and still not get anything out of it. Mm. So first thing I want to say is Sham has COVID and you might hear a little coughing. (laughs) I apologize. (laughs) To, to even ask you to be on today. So I'm, I'm just Oh, no, no. I want to I want to do as much as I can, and I'm not getting anyone sick by <laughs> doing this. So. <laughs> so just in summary to this, this part that we've been talking about, it sounds to me like you're saying true yoga means not just deconstructing our mind, but literally kind of doing our best to let go of our beliefs and be open to what the data is telling us. Yeah, but that takes work. You have to do something. So there's always a procedure. You know, it's like vote counting. You could just decide who won, or you could have a procedure for counting the vote. And the procedure, you don't know how things are going to turn out, but you just apply it, and you can be surprised. So that's yoga. Yoga yoga is that type of procedural intervention. means that you can be surprised, but it also means you can learn. Right. The other case where you've just decided who's won, there's no learning. Right. You'll just always be convinced that whoever you thought won, won. I mean, the opening lines of the Yoga Sutra basically lay this out. And then what follows are discussions about the ways in which what we contemplate can influence us when we're not completely in control and responsible and the kinds of remedies we can employ to get our our agency and independence back. 
first of all, there's a whole lot of people that don't want to go to this much trouble. They just want to stretch yeah. hamstrings. And, <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not talking to those people go stretch your hamstrings, but for the people who are serious about engaging in this kind of mental cleansing, if you will, I, I don't know what, what you would call it. I like that. <laughs> I think a big sticking point is finding a qualified person with integrity that you can trust that will show you the system of how to look at these theories, how to find the disagreements between the theories, how to learn, how to be surprised. Like it's not easy to find somebody that has that whole package. Would you agree? Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that I tell people, like often people will get surprised at what I'm teaching because they haven't heard it before. And then they'll think that that's evidence that somehow this is just my view. And my response is, I I can teach you these skills, and then you can go out and do the work for yourself. A really good teacher should be sharing those skills with you. Now, it's part of the Western tradition to think about knowledge in terms of beliefs. And so what people usually want in a Westernized world is they just want to be taught what to believe, which is remarkable because people who want that are basically asking to be manipulated because they've they've given up their independence to someone else who will tell them what to believe. Finding a teacher who's going to be able to help you with that is unusual. So, you know, I mentioned to you uh, prior to us turning the record button on that uh, I'm unusual in being a philosopher in this world of yoga studies. So my PhD is in philosophy. I teach philosophy courses. And the kinds of things that philosophers do is just so relevant. There's so many layers of colonialism in the yoga world. But I think the fact that we don't expect in yoga land that the person teaching you should either be an expert or learn from an expert. Nobody really worries about that. They want things like lineages. They want to know that they can basically market usually some connection to some guru or something like that. So yeah, there's a, there's a kind of motivational mismatch between why people are willing to engage in yoga education, quote unquote, and what they really need to do to actually learn. Well, when, when I hear you say that, it occurs to me, you know, we get calls from people and their first question is, what kind of certificate am I going to get? Does that qualify for continuing education? Yeah, yeah. Is it like, whenever I get a call like that, I just right. cringe because it's so misguided, right? It's- yeah. I have a little sympathy for prospective students because they don't actually know what they're getting themselves into. Right. Yeah. That's the whole point of learning, right? They haven't learned what you have to teach. But still, the questions they ask are important, right? They are, but if that's the only No, question- no, no. Sorry, the, the questions right. that they ask, it doesn't mean that they're asking the right questions. So I'm sure a lot of the questions are just the wrong questions, as you were saying, right? They're not or, about or we need more. Like, I would right? want a student to care about, am I going to learn? What are the, you know, like, right. content of it? Like, right. that, to me, is what's so exciting. You know, when I went all those years to India... I didn't know what they were going to teach me when I showed up, but I had right. the faith and trust to sit there and wait for whatever gift I was going to get that day. You know, I just feel like we don't have that in Western society. Yeah. You know, one of the things that happens in the Western world, so it comes to a great surprise to many people that the models that people use for yoga education are actually from Plato and Aristotle. Mm. No, they're not South Asian. So Plato dreams up this pyramid scheme, this top down model with the guru the enlightened guru at the top who dispenses knowledge and then everybody's there to see how far they can basically they're trying to prove their competence and and by going up as far as they can in the hierarchy so there's that one model and then there's the aristotle model where everything's about nature but some people just need to be told what to do so you come and inhabit some kind of natural context an ashram where there will be like someone with experience who will then impart the wisdom the actual traditional south asian pedagogy was way different as a student you were signing up for the rigors of whatever is being taught the teacher is really there to kind of inspire students to do their own work so you know i think in the west when people bring these plato aristotle models they usually get in trouble because what they'll find is someone who will just take over 
because in a way that's what they want because they're coming with those expectations right but if you if you can have this more exploratory attitude then i think you can try lots of different teachers try lots of different trainings you can you know learn what there is to be learned and you're right that's not very traditional in the west but are you saying sham that the south asian way that it was always done to inspire the student to do their own work i mean i i think you're saying that's that's the way we should be going yes Oh, yeah, for sure. That's why universities are, are useful places, right? Because, you know, a professor at a university doesn't program students with knowledge, right? A good teacher, a good professor is going to create a context in which students have to do their own work, but they can learn, right? That is, the environment is structured so that when students put in their own work, they, they can learn something new. Just because you enroll in a course doesn't mean you don't learn anything, <laughs> right? Unless you Unless you're going to take the class seriously and keep up with things, you know, and that's the far more South Asian model of you're here because you chose to be here and you've signed up for a challenge and now the rest is on you. And if students aren't okay with that, I don't know how they'll ever learn anything because they'll just want to be spoon fed or something, uh, which isn't learning. What I find interesting about that is that I think through K through 12 and through college, they've been programmed in this more Plato way that when you actually do it the other way, they think you're maybe not doing your job or how come you're not so structured or organized. Yeah, for sure. You know, I've had a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot of pushback, but some pushback where I'm like, no, I'm giving you this this thing for you to do the work. And they're like, wait a minute, where's my organization and my quiz? (laughs) Yeah, so it's surprising, but the more you give to students, the greater responsibility there is for them to learn and the less they'll think you're teaching. I've just, you know, for instance, I had a student complain once that I didn't teach anything in his, in my class. He had to do all the work himself to learn. And I was like, that's awesome. I just taught you. Like, I, that's me. Right. <laughs> but the student I like, was I'm so a star. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, he, like that was like the student feedback was like abysmal, but I'm like, no, I did exactly what I was planning to do. If you were able to, to learn on your own. So, you know, in the Yoga Sutra book one, Ishra is the first teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what does that mean? That, that sovereignty, the ideal of sovereignty is exact. It, there's no other way to learn except for being devoted to, to Ishra. Because that means you, then you take on the responsibility of doing the work yourself. And that's what it is to learn. So, of course, Ishra was the first teacher, taught all the, all, all the early teachers, and is still the only teacher that you absolutely need. Everybody else is there keeping you company. But like that, that ideal is is what propels a student to learn. That's that's really a beautiful thought. I I really like that. So if you if you're teaching students, how do you how do you set this up for them to let them know that, hey, I'm going to be giving you a little bit of scaffolding. I'm gonna put yeah. you in the right direction but you have to actually have to do this for you. I can't do this for you. Right. You say um, that up front so they have the proper expectations. I just make it more clear as to what I'm expecting them to do. And then I tell them why I've structured the course that way. So I structure this independent work because it's, it promotes students being engaged and learning. I say these things. And sometimes students do notice that, you know, the weekly small assignments where they have to answer a question and they'll only be able to do it if they did the reading or something like that, that works, right? People, people who would otherwise just not do the reading are actually doing the reading. But I do find, you know, and, and maybe I have a bad attitude, but I find that there's a percentage of students who are just, they're resentful of having to learn. That is, like even though they chose the course, even though they chose to show up, <laughs> show, they resent that now it's all on them. And I'm I'm not sure that there's much that you could say to those people that would make them see the opportunity they have before them, right? That's exactly what I was just going to say. And I truly believe this, that the opportunity to be born into a human body, to find your way to yoga, to find a teacher who's willing to be kind to you and not neglect you or abuse right. you 
and is willing to give you like these keys that you can go open the door. Like, I don't know what more, can, what, what else can we do? Like, right. If you don't yeah. want to turn well, you know, the key, then right. I don't know what to tell you. It sounds great. I mean, that just sounds awesome to me. You know, so for instance, I think one of the reasons that it's only a small minority of people who'd want to learn from me is just that I'm not here to really do your work for you, right? So it's, uh, you know, it's so obvious that I'm like, oh, there's so much to learn. I will share this with you. Now you have to learn this. It's hard when it's so much. It's hard to paint it as super easy. It, it'll take effort. You will have to take the time. But like, if you're willing to do that, anybody can learn. Like, I, I mean, so people, and this has a lot to do with the way our economy functions, but people want quick everything. Yeah. And, right? and learning is not quick. Learning is like a very slow process. Do you think it's tied to the amount of shraddha that they have? So if they had more shraddha, they would be uh, more capable of sticking it out? Well, more inspired to oh, go down I a see. difficult path, more connected to themselves mm. and something larger to want to put in that effort. I'm just thinking of chapter one of the Yoga Sutra. That Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think with Shraddha, like, you have to, that already requires a fair bit of discernment. You have to understand what you're supposed to be optimistic about, not just everything, the practice. What does that mean, right? So I think students who've done that much work, yeah, for sure. It's interesting. I think that this is where trauma comes in. I think some people have kleshas where the very challenge of having to understand something that they don't see that isn't how they come to this point is very upsetting to them because, you know, an ego, the, I, asmita is just this definition of yourself in terms of like how you see the world or, you know, your perspective. And when you have ego, it wants to say it's everything. But since it's just a perspective, there's always so much evidence that it's nothing, it's worthless. And so I think people who are ego-driven are constantly having to deal with these insecurities of being nothing. And they don't want, they don't want to let go of that ego because that's who they think they are. So then they'll sooner just not learn or blame the teacher, which is, <laughs> this is something <laughs> I've come to appreciate is just kind of part, it's just the way it is in, in university teaching, but like, it doesn't matter. It's always your fault that they didn't learn. But and what I mean, what's know, the alternative? What you know, yeah, we don't want this, but I think it's also important to point out like this is what we do want, right? So, I think what we want is we want a structure and environment where the learning is not about anybody's perspective, it's not about you know what the teacher wants, it's about mastering the skills that are going to help you learn more it's about mastering the skills that you can then use once you leave this particular learning environment in a new context right where you can problem solve there too you know in a way this is symbolic of people's confusion of philosophy so people think that a philosophy degree is worthless a lot of people think that it's like a totally useless degree but there have been all these studies First of all, philosophy grads usually like score nearly as well as math or physics students on all sorts of standardized tests. And this is weird for people who just kind of look at the, look at the wall. And, but also, you know, mid-career, the average income of a philosophy grad is higher than any other non-professional degree. And that's because when you're learning philosophy, you're learning how to think for yourself and problem solve. And so you are working on the skills you need to reinvent yourself. So like, there's no job after a philosophy degree to be a philosopher, <laughs> but right. you can you can then use these skills, these critical thinking skills that you've developed to then go solve the problem of your life. You know, I think making education more philosophical would be good for everyone, but people, you know, I think because there is this expectation that it all has to be, out, the outcome has to be obvious. 
So if I learn this, what will happen? What will I be able to bank on, right? Well, nothing. <laughs> like yoga, I don't, I don't know what to tell you if you learn yoga. What you will, will you, you'll be happier with your life. How about that? But like, um, you, might, you might have more clarity and be a whole yeah, lot. You might have more clarity. You might realize you got a lot of work to do. Like really, <laughs> feel like it's not cheerful, right? But, you know, there's nothing like living your life on your own terms, right? And yoga, one of the reasons I started getting so interested in yoga as a scholar is that it's so much about that. Okay, um, so that is, that's the name of, of the episode, Living Your right. Life on Your Own Terms. <laughs> so we just found that's the amazing. title. <laughs> but the, let's go into that a little bit because I think, you know, I've seen it over and over in the yoga world where, oh, my group of people wears this kind of dress and they right. do their hair like this and they say these <laughs> and and that again is just off track right it's yeah. we're trying to help people to live their life right well i mean i think this is just more of not yoga but ableism right about having a certain kind of abilities showing up in certain ways now as i'm part of yoga education for yoga teachers like I see. I, I I see how it happens. It's a big business. It's a big industry. Yoga studios rely upon this for a good chunk of their revenues, mm -hmm. and they're sold. Students are sold this idea of how they're going to learn yoga, right? In a two hundred hour, but it's all going to be basically asana. So they're already they're already set up for all of this, right? <laughs> so you know. It's surprising when people break away from that mold. I think that's the that's the more interesting thing. When I run into yogis who are like, "Yeah, that was just silly," like <laughs> they, that they kind of really start to see that uh, their practice is more than just you know those qualifications or being able to put those letters at the end of their words and their names, etc. You know, but then we have the opposite, where people are unwilling to study and learn from anyone because they know best, yeah. right? So yeah. It's a very, it's for sure. It's hard to find that sweet spot. Yeah. I mean, but once again, I feel like they're just, they're just trying to carve out a space for themselves in this industry of yoga education mm. where their selling point is I'm a free thinker independent or something, but you know, freedom is something you got to work on. It's not just something that happens. Your independence isn't something that just happens passively. So you know, I feel like this is, these are just kind of two different aspects of the commodification of yoga. So, um, so if we were to get people into this idea of true yoga will help you to become more sovereign, have more internal freedom, live your life on your own terms, what would you say is the highlight or the benefit of that? I mean, oh, it's your life. I mean, your life should be lived by you, right? I think that's what yoga taught me, or I, I didn't realize how it was a philosophy of that space for each one of us to occupy our own life. I found it very comforting and soothing because so much of the trauma is about trying to conform to other people's desires or expectations for themselves. Now, of course, really living life on your own terms is a practice. So not everything goes and there's a, and, and to take it seriously is to make room for others to do the same. And mm. to also realize what we have in common and that interest. And so it ends up being quite social too, but you know, I don't have to like everything that everybody else likes. I don't, I have to do everything that everybody else does and I can still be living my life successfully while I make these choices for myself. Yeah, it's just, it's more like the alternative is no alternative at all, right? Where you're not really living your life on your own terms. Um, I was going to tie that back into what you said about, you know, when we just kind of cut and copy what we see, oh, that's a happy person, I'll do what they're doing. We right. end up more insecure and more anxious and more depressed. Right, and for sure, because we're thinking about our life as something that has to be measured by someone else. And we have no control over that person. And so it becomes an impossible goal, really. Unachievable, um, actually. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's why Swadhyaya, you choose your own Ishtadevata. That is in the practice of your own self-governance. You choose your own values that you are that you're living by. And that doesn't mean anything goes, but you're taking responsibility 
for those values being the ones that you live by. And it's so different from just doing whatever you feel like, right? There's a kind of logic to it. Like if I am actually endorsing this as something important to me, some things are consistent with that, other things aren't, and I'm going to have to straighten out my life so that it's more tidy in that way. And then that practice just does just leaves room for other people to do do the same too. We okay, reduce trauma, right, when we start doing this. Yeah. Well, we have to we have to take a look at our trauma, I think, and and commit to working through it. So what I wanted to ask you is, is this only for the privileged people? I mean, there are so many people out there that there are days that you know they're working sixteen hours a day, yeah, two and three jobs. Like they, it, it would seem not all of us would have time to live our life on our terms. What do you think? Is it only right. privileged? So living life on your own terms isn't the same as always getting what you want or things always working out easily. I mean, the reason we start the practice of yoga is that if you are living the life that isn't on your own terms, then if you don't commit to that for yourself, you're not going to take the opportunities that can come up for you to increasingly be the author of your life. So this practice isn't, it's not for people who have it made. It's for people who need, who need to, the, the yoga, you don't have to be good at yoga to do yoga. So it's for everybody. And the worse your life is, the more you, the more you need the practice. Uh, everybody needs the practice, but you know, that's why thinking about yoga in terms of outcomes is frowned upon because you don't have control over outcomes usually but you have control over your choice and activities and your responsibility so the more you can focus on that the more you make room for yourself in your life and then the more that you have a way to change the other activities you know when you realize that yoga is just about living your life as a person successfully then it involves having to work the nine like if that's what you have to do to pay the bills that's part of it too so what i think is really only for the privilege or you know i think something more like asana practice that's like that's a that's a pretty cushy thing i'm not saying it won't be useful to other people right so i'm very impressed with the teaching of prison in, as yoga in prisons or in schools and so there's a lot of options asana practice basically right and that is very therapeutic but you know you have to have the time, you have to have the wherewithal, you have to have someone to teach you. But the actual practice of yoga is just how you make this. So the actual practice of yoga, so maybe we just get to the actual practice of yoga, uh, potentially teaches us this at the start of book two, three basic kriyas, activities, which is devotion to Ishra sovereignty. And then what does this look like? Well, you have to practice your sovereignty by tapas, challenging yourself, being unconservative, and swadhyaya, self-governing, owning your own choices. So, you know, when you are always doing that, you are always showing up as yourself and you're also simplifying. So you're still doing that when you show up to your whatever job you don't like. You know, it'll still be a job you don't like, but it'll be a lot easier for you to do if you were making room for yourself. I'll give an example. I mean, it seems a little mm, etheric or something, but yeah, sure. I just retired in May and I worked for 25 years at a university and I was the kind of the, the weirdo in the, in the department because they didn't understand. I was in a kinesiology department and they're very much on, you know, physiology and biomechanics. And here I am over teaching, you know, practically about yoga sutra in my kinesiology classes, but I was okay with that. I was okay to be the oddball. Yeah. Okay. Right. To, to walk by campus and, have people just kind of say hi, but really never get invited to anything. Yeah, right. Not develop very many close friendships just because I think I was an oddball. And and yeah. I was living my life on my terms and I didn't feel badly about it. And I, I don't even feel a loss. I just feel like I got to be me. Yeah. And that's good. For sure. I think that's a lovely example. Like when you when you're practicing, you find a way to hack like what you're doing so that it becomes part of your practice. And so then you're not living two lives. Right. Um, you know, that's just simpler for us. It's hard to keep track of all sorts of different lives. and uh, Just living the one, you're always doing the same thing. You're always practicing wherever you go. It releases a lot of energy, right, that you would have been using to trying to compartmentalize your life. And, you know, I only had to do that two days a week. And I did compartmentalize, really. 
I had two separate sets of outfits, everything, right? Yeah. I can really just viscerally feel that release of, I just got rid of all those. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but I'm even thinking of somebody who's doing this within their own home with their own spouse or their parent. Yeah. Like it's exhausting to live those two lives mm. or three or four. Yeah, exactly. And for whom and for why, why, right? You know, so often people want it because they think it'll ingratiate themselves with others, but then you're just deciding to, to be their minion or something, right? <laughs> you're just deciding. Well, there's no. Be the one that they, they boss around. And there's no stability in pretending to be somebody else and eventually it's going to all come out anyway, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so as we get ready to, I wouldn't say close, but getting closer to the end, what do you think is the key component in knowing who you are, liking who you are, living your life on your terms? Like what, if you had to pick a gem, what yeah. would you say is the, the thing? Well, I think that ends up happening when you are allowing yourself not to be determined by your past, by Thuppis, and you really are then owning your choices going forward. And, you know, that allows you to relate to yourself uh, not in terms of issues or problems that you would have had. And I think, you you know, when you're like that, I've noticed I've, I'm a likable guy with because I, I'm understanding myself without the issues, right? I'm not, I, it's not, I'm not bringing all of that baggage with me. So self-friendship self certainly starts to become something you can engage in because you're not internally antagonizing yourself. Wow. I think everybody wants that. I think it's the commitment to saying, I'm actually going to go for that. And then doing the work is... Yeah, right. Doing the work. So people, I hear sometimes people say, forget it. It's this weird libertarian thing. I'm just, I'm not interested in what anybody else has to say. I'm just going to do it my way. Right. I'm still interested in what people have to like. I'm interested. Other people are interesting. I'm not framing living on my own terms and in a way that excludes others. So I think, you know, doing the work, I think when you have an, an ego-based life, doing the work is scary mm. because it, it, the work, it seems like a kind of violence to the ego. The ego, this is kind of the self-understanding in terms of like how you see the world then feels threatened because it starts to realize that it's not going to hang, it's not going to be around <laughs> for very long. And so unless you're strong and you're choosing so let go of that, you'll just hold on to that and then you won't do the work, but you'll probably still be very dissatisfied. Hmm. So what, what last thoughts do you want to add to this conversation? I feel oh, like. Oh, okay. Well, um, <laughs> so one of the things that I, I teach frequently is that if you're really interested in yoga, you have to understand the ways in which it was originally a specific philosophical practice. And then if you can learn that, and we've been talking about that, then everything becomes your practice. And then you're not compartmentalizing your energy on yourself, right? So it's, you know, I see with my students, I'm not a therapist. I'm not trying to cure or solve people's problems. But by sharing this knowledge, I see them doing it themselves. Right. And I think the most interesting thing that I noticed with them is the way in which they talk about their life as something that's more simple and then more with more room. I mean, they don't use these words, but that's kind of what I'm getting. Uh, like, whereas before there would have been all sorts of concerns and issues and worries about this person or that person and this thing or that thing, it just ends up being so much clearer, so much easier to manage. And, you know, we carry around all this baggage is you don't have to carry it it's it's so freeing so i think the neat thing about philosophical work is you can't there's no outcome it's just you and when people people want to judge the value of things in terms of outcomes they're missing out on this remarkable opportunity they have to live their life properly 
part of it is the short term versus the long term. This philosophical work is long term. But also it's very yogic. You just have to get rid of the idea that you're going to be able to understand the importance in terms of outcomes. And then the moment you get rid of that, all sorts of good things will start to happen because you're actually putting your energy into the practice and not getting distracted But why this or that isn't happening the way you want it to. I'm going to make all of my students listen to this when they start the program. I mean, it's... Oh, fantastic. Thank you. you. You don't realize what's about to happen until you put in the work and it happens and there's no right. other way. And we don't even know what that outcome is going to be. So there's no other way than just to step into it. And I, I think people will buy into having a kind of a sovereign life with more spaciousness, more clarity, mm-hmm. you know, that's about as best as we can say might happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't, without that, you can't enjoy anything. Yeah. Right. So you can have the other things, but they won't be fun. So tell us about some of the courses that you run. You know, it seems kind of, as I said, almost etheric what you're talking about, but who can't uh, see this? This is your website and it's. Yeah. Website. Yeah. That's right. And so if you click on there's there's like a page of free knowledge. Uh, free, uh, where did it go? A free video lectures. And then there's courses. And so there's a lot. So uh, there's just a bunch of stuff that you could you could watch for free. And then I have a lot of courses. And the, some of the courses are also for free. So if you go to the courses link. That's a lot of free content right there that I just saw. Yeah, yeah. But it, it was a decision I made because I was diving into this world where nobody knew who I was. So it was a way. So even though if you were up on the literature, you would know who I was in yoga land, people didn't know who I was. So sharing free content was a way. And, but also I think there's some basic stuff, like people can't appreciate the value of what you have to offer until they understand some of it. So I think that's important. Yeah. So did you just start a course with Anusha? I think we just finished. Yeah. So we did this last year to yoga origins lineages and cultural appropriation. So it's kind of a this this focus on decolonizing yoga practice. And we talk about each the origins, the idea of lineages and cultural appropriation. Yeah, so we'll probably do it again in the future. But I think, you know, I'm always amazed at how little people know about this stuff. You know, mm-hmm. that there's actually a history to yoga. <laughs> And there's actually colonization and colonization interferes with their ability to understand. He seems like pretty simple stuff, but for a lot of folks, it's like, really? So, <laughs> so I that, think that's you have job security point. coming up I'm, in the next four. You have job security because it's such a new concept for so many people in the Western yoga world. Those simple things you just said are not simple. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, I mean, people, they need to unlearn what they've learned Hmm. And the unlearning is the unlearning of the the history of colonization. And we participate in that when we're not really interested in learning. Yoga practitioners are interesting people because even even the boring kinds are doing the practice. They're doing some kind of practice. So I find there's a part of them that can hear this. But, you know, you have you have to be interested in 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 that work. And the work is is easy work, but will always seem threatening if you're going to be ego-based yeah i've heard you say that several times yeah yeah i don't know how else because i the stuff i teach isn't actually difficult but i see that the problems people have in assimilating is that they bring all of their past perspectives and then they want to understand what they're learning in terms of their past perspective and they can't they're just not the same thing yeah um I did. I feel like silence for a moment is like just taking that in that our, when we want to bring our past and compare and contrast everything to that traumatic past, where are we going? We're going around in circles. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's no learning. There's, there's only anxiety and klesha. And that the goal is to set some of that down, be present, take in what's in front of us right here, right now, as a researcher would. Mm-hmm be open and receptive to lots of possibilities and see what yeah. it are. 
Yeah, for sure, for sure. There's just such a thing as history that we we didn't make up. It comes before us. And if you understand history, you understand why we're where we are. And so that's very useful, but you can understand history if you're being here. Like in the States, in the weird aversion to critical race theory, which isn't even taught in school. It's like a legal theory, but it's become this bogeyman because people are bringing all their, their trauma of being part of a colonizing racist practice, and they don't want to... It's that or the criticism. They don't want to hear the criticism because they're too scared, right? So they make they make up issues when there's no issues, and then they can't learn because they've already decided what the topic is. Yeah. Well, in the outro, I will try to summarize this. It feels almost like grasping in the air, you know, what what you're talking about, and I'll I'll try to condense it a little bit with some of the thoughts. I took lots of lots of notes yeah, <laughs> and cool. and give some, some action steps. Like, you know, this, this thing that Sham is trying to share with you is here's where you can start. I mean, I think yeah. a good start would be to go to your website and, and look at a lot of your free. Videos. Thank you. So is there any last words of wisdom you want to impart upon us? Take care of yourself. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, very and take important. care of you. You're just coming down with COVID. It's your day. Yes. yes. Well, I tested positive today. I felt a bit weird yesterday. But yeah, it's my first time. So far, very mild. Hopefully it stays that way. But yeah, well, managed, I managed to avoid it for two years. So. <laughs> and I'm so grateful that you came on, even though you just tested positive. So. I'm sorry if I was coughing too much. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you. I was thinking after this interview that Sham and I approached this interview similar to how he's suggesting that we can show up for our yoga education, but even more importantly, show up for our lives where we come with intention and clarity and a willingness to be open and to not have so many preconceived ideas and beliefs that we're kind of locked in our own box, just trying to reinforce our current beliefs because we're so scared that if we see something that's outside of our belief structure, that somehow we will, you know, our ego will die, right? I think what he's saying is like, show up, be present, be alert, be open, thoroughly practice Kriya Yoga. You know, the second chapter of, of Yoga Sutra, Tapas, Svadhyaya, Ishvara, Pranidhana, be committed to that path and then let go and see what happens. And I think that's really hard for us. We want to know the outcome. We want to know what am I likely to get if I do this? And similar to the interview we just had, we just showed up and, and kind of let it unfold. And that in that unfolding of life, we will get to know ourselves better. We will understand who we are. We will potentially start to understand why we're here and, and how we can be of service in the world. But those are all mysteries to be unlocked. Those are not, you know, something that you get to know all the answers up front. And now you're going to work down this very linear path to get to the place, right? It's just the opposite. It's a willingness to say, I'm here, I'm open, I'm present. I have no idea what will happen. And I'm okay with that. I am here for the journey, not necessarily knowing where I'm going to end up on this path. And I think, you know, from my experience of, of learning yoga in India with my teachers, that's what they required of me is just to show up and do my best and let's see what happens together. And as Mr. Descachar would sometimes say, is something good will probably happen. <laughs> but I think something challenging could really could happen too. So I enjoyed this conversation. I think the the bottom line is tapas, svadhyaya, ishvara pranidhana, just commit to kriya yoga. And then do your best to enjoy life and, and see what happens. And as he said that, you know, committing to Kriya Yoga, that's not just for the wealthy. That's just not for the people who are, who are very able. That's for all of us. We can all commit to that devotion and that tapas and that self-reflection and eventually 
potentially letting go into something that we don't actually understand that we call Ishvara Pranidhana. So thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to be with you all. Please don't forget to sign up for our newsletter mailing list, where we give you a free gift every single week. It's usually something that the guest has been talking about, like a book chapter or an article or an infographic. Check out the show notes for that. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget, we have a new YouTube channel called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. We also have a new Patreon page where you can support us to bring you the most excellent content. And that is Optimal State and the Yoga Therapy Hour Patreon page. Also, you could write us a review on most major platforms that host podcasts. Give us five stars if you appreciate the show and tell us what you love so that we can do more of that. Finally, we support several nonprofit organizations through this podcast. See the show notes to understand how you can help. If you'd like to be a guest or a sponsor for this program, contact us at the email welcome at theoptimalstate.com. Welcome at theoptimalstate.com. And finally, a special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.